This week, we celebrate Independence Day, the 4th of July. It's one of those, one of those times of the year where America kind of presses pause. I mean, work shuts down, schools are closed, most businesses turn out their lights. It's a time when the nation gathers together to celebrate the incredible freedom that we all enjoy here in the United States. It's a time of family. It's a time of coming together. We have a lot of differences, don't we? But we're one nation, right? Well, these days, that sentiment doesn't ring quite as true as maybe it once did. We're certainly a nation, but we're not as one as we used to be. There's been a lot of turbulence in recent years, a lot of issues that divide us. That gulf that, that separates us, it just seems like it's getting wider and wider as opinions get stronger and stronger. The world seems like it's getting increasingly polarized. We're the United States of America, and yet the unity that we long for, that seems to be rapidly dissipating. There's one American clothing company that is trying to rectify this this year. They come out with a t-shirt that has an American flag on it, an American flag in red, white, and blue, and yet the, the fabric of the shirt is actually purple. And it says this on the back of the shirt. It says that purple is what happens when you bring red, white, and blue together. Now call me a skeptic, but I'm not really sure what a purple shirt is actually going to accomplish. You can clothe the 7.5 billion people on the planet in purple, but is that really going to make a difference? We're a people divided. In Genesis 10, we see a similar problem developing. As the population just seems to explode, it actually becomes increasingly divided at the same time. After having delivered eight people through the flood, a boat that God designed, Noah built, these eight people are commanded by God in Genesis 9-1 to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And apparently Noah and his family, they took that seriously. Because that's exactly what we see here in chapter 10. Verse 1 says this. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. That's what Genesis 10 is really all about. It's an accounting of the people who were descended from Noah's three sons. And it's, you, if you look at it, it's really broken up into three different sections based on uh, the descendants of each of these boys. Not all the descendants are listed here. But it gives us a good picture that, that the, what God wanted, that's what happened. The people, they multiplied and the people dispersed. In verses 2 through 5, we see the sons of Japheth and where they spread. You may remember last week that the blessing Noah gave to Japheth, it included this, this idea that Japheth's line was going to enlarge. It was going to get bigger. And that's exactly what happened. It says here in verse 2, the sons of Japheth, 
Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tiras. Then it goes on to list the sons of Gomer and the sons of Javan. But it doesn't mention any of Japheth's other grandchildren from any of the other sons. And then verse 5 says this, From these the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. what, What lands did they spread into? Well, mostly to the north and to the east of the land of Canaan. And we mentioned that these people were going to come to be known as what we would call today Indo-Europeans. Then in verse 6, we head on into Ham's line, Ham's kids, the sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. Cush goes down to to the area below Egypt. Egypt, as you might assume goes into the region of Egypt, both north and south. Put, we're not exactly sure where Put goes. As one scholar says, no one is sure where Put was put. (laughs) That's a testimony to the scholarly sense of humor. Canaan and his descendants, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zemurites, and the Hamathites, they occupy the area known as, later to be known as Palestine. Then in verses 21 to 31, we learn of the descendants of Shem. This line, of course, is of particular importance. It's particular interest to us because based on the blessing that Noah gave and Shem's prominence in that, we're expecting God to do something really big here. God's going to do something big through Shem and his family. In fact, immediately in verse 21, we zero in on one particular of Shem's descendants. Did you notice that? In verse 21, to Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. A man named Eber, somewhere in Shem's line, that man is is called out right at the beginning when he starts to mention the people that are going to be born from Shem. We find out later that Eber is the great-grandchild of Shem. Shem fathers Arpashad, Arpashad fathers Shelah, Shelah fathers Eber. Eber is known as the ancestor of the Hebrews. The father. He would be the father of a son named Peleg, from whom several generations later would come a man by the name of Abram. Verse 32 concludes this entire table of nations by recording, these are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So the fruitfulness, the multiplication, the filling the earth that God ordered, well, that happened. That's a reality. Now what do we learn from that? What can we gain from that? Well, there are a few things. This is the record of where we all came from. All of us, every single one of us in this room, 
and the people outside of these walls. This is where we all came from. We are united. Humanity is one big family. I wouldn't say happy family, but we are a family nonetheless, sharing a single father named Noah. And that's one of the big things that we learn from Genesis 10. So when you see the ads and you hear the cries encouraging all of us to just embrace each other and recognize that we are all one, when you hear them say, can't, can't we just get along? Or we all belong. Or you hear those cries for peace, for love, for unity. Whether, whether the ones making those cries know it or not, there is a tangible reality that supports what they are saying. There's truth in that. When you read the suffering of people overseas, when you hear the, that politician or, or this one over here making those just nonsensical, ridiculous arguments, or when you see the, the homeless person on the corner, or you're cut off on the freeway by that young punk driving that $300,000 sports car that he really, there's no way he could possibly afford that. Or when you bump into those people from that culture doing that thing that rubs you the wrong way, realize that in a very real a very true sense, your family, your family. We're all children of Noah. And not only that, we're all creatures that have been specially designed by the same creator. That's what Paul was trying to get across to the Athenians in Acts 17. He says this, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. There is something that all of us have in common. There's something that we all share. We come from the same man and the same God. And in that sense, we're united. We are united but we are so not united. We are so divided, aren't we? We see that division beginning to happen here in Genesis 10. People are having kids. They're spreading out. They're going to be divided by natural things, things like geography, language, ethnicity, cultural differences. But all of that pales in comparison to the singular thing that brings division like nothing else. And that is their own sin. That's what happened between Noah and his sons in Genesis 9. We read about that last week. Sin came between Noah and Ham. And sin came between Ham and his brothers. And sin is exactly what wreaks havoc on us today. It's in high towers and it's on the streets. It's in our campuses and in our homes. 
Hearts that have said no to God and yes to self, they continue to divide and destroy us. Campaigns and companies, they, they, they try to unite people by arguing that where we live and how we talk and the, the color of our skin and the culture that we come from and any number of other differences that they point out make us unique they're, they're saying those things really don't matter. And in some sense, they're right. To a certain extent, they're right. And yet, just recognizing that is not going to solve our disunity problems because until you deal with the root problem that separates each of us from each other, that separates us from God, you're going to continue to see that division. So what is the answer? What's the answer? Well, God told us way back in Genesis 3, way back when the very first divide occurred, when Adam and Eve, they disobeyed God in the garden, they separated themselves from God and from each other. Their hearts were infected with this division-inducing serum called sin. It's, it's the poison that turns human beings against their creator in favor of going their own way, charting their own course. Sounds like a great thing. Deciding what is best for me apart from God. Problem is it ultimately ends in death. And that's when God said to the serpent, he said to that, that tempter, that instigator, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This was the very first hint of the good news. The very first hint of the gospel. It's the proto-gospel, which some call it. God declares that he's going to put an end to the work of Satan, the work that Satan started. It was the crushing blow to the head. And that would come through Jesus Christ. When Jesus suffered, when Jesus died, and when Jesus rose again from the grave. And with this crushing blow to sin would come our one and only hope to be set free to be delivered, to be made alive again with God. The, the, the narcissism and the rebellion inside would be put to death that we might live and love in the way that God designed us to from the very beginning. This would be the answer, the only real and true solution to the thing that divides us. The answer is Jesus it's Jesus. And many of us in this room have turned to Jesus. And we've recognized the guilt of our sin. We've recognized our, our, the rift between us and God. We've confessed to God our sin, confessed our need. We placed our trust in Jesus Christ, what he did on the cross. And we've been washed clean. We've been forgiven. And it's amazing. If you haven't done that yet, you need to do that. You need to trust Jesus. You need to trust him today. Because until you do that, you're still one. And whether you know it or not, you're still perpetuating division because sin has got a grip. 
And the greatest, the greatest accomplishment of sin in our hearts is that it deceives us from even thinking that it has a grip, a hold on us. Jesus needs to do a transforming work inside of all of us and give us new hearts that beat in the way that God intended them to beat. But for those of you who have trusted in Jesus, which I, I believe is probably most of us in this room, there's a temptation for us. There's a temptation to look around at our world and see all the corruption and hear of all the suffering, watch all the horrible things that we see on the news, and we're tempted to wonder, is God's plan still happening? Is that still coming? Do we still have something to look forward to? Yes, we're, we're trying to believe this. We're trying to live according to this. But, but man, you just see this. I just get so depressed, so discouraged looking around. When we were studying Ephesians, we read in chapter 1 that Jesus, in Jesus, God has a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Is that still the plan? Are, are, are we still moving in that direction? Is he really going to make good on that promise? Because everything we seem to see seems to be pointing otherwise. Is that still the plan? Is God still in control? Well, other than the myriad of passages that we find in the Bible that testify to God's faithfulness, God's unfailing love, and that God is a God who keeps his promises, like we noted last week in Isaiah 46, there's something else that should give us confidence and hope, and that's what I hope to leave us with this morning. It's the reality that the way that God has intervened and moved throughout history, in the midst of human history, that is just so messy, God continues to show us he's still in control. That we still need to hold on to the hope that we have in Jesus. Let's take a look just what, what he does in Genesis. Just a few of the things he does in Genesis that I hope will encourage us this morning. Genesis begins with the promise of a snake killer promise of a snake's killer. God said there was going to be an offspring of Eve's and he was going to come. He was going to crush the serpent's head. That's when Eve gives birth to Cain. Could Cain be the one? Can you imagine the excitement there must have been in, inside of those first parents? They messed everything up, but we, had, we just had a child. God promised that it would come in the form of a child, one of our children, and that's what was going to write everything. Could it be that Cain is the answer here? And then Adam, he names his, his wife Eve, the mother of all living. From her, there was this expectation that life was going to come. When Cain was born to Eve, Eve said, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Do you hear the hope? Do you hear the joy? The sense of anticipation? Could this be the one? Not long after Cain is born, a second son is born. Now we have two possibilities. Is it Cain or is it Abel? We're not so sure. Could one of these kids be the one to make things right? And yet then comes a crushing blow. And Cain murders his brother. Imagine the horror 
Imagine the heartache, the overwhelming sense of loss. Imagine the numbness that you would feel after the pain just kind of subsided. You're stuck in this kind of funk, the utter feeling of hopelessness. Oh, but don't worry. God's in control. At the end of chapter 4, another child is born. Seth is born. And that's when we're told the people begin to call on the name of the Lord. It's through Seth's line that a man named Enoch is going to be born. And we're told that Enoch walked with God. This is sounding good. Things were looking up. Perhaps God hadn't given up on his plan just yet. Oh my gosh. But then humanity takes a terrible turn for the worse. As they multiplied, we're told, they didn't start looking more and more like God's image bearers, like they were designed to look. Instead, they, they spiral down deeper and deeper into darkness. And Cain's line now, along with Seth's line, they become just a violent mess. And in Genesis 6-5, we read, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And that's bad. But what's worse is God seems like he's had enough. It seems as if God has given up on his plan. If ever there was a moment when it seems like God has had a change of heart, decided to give up on humanity completely, it's this one where in verse 6 he says, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I've made them. But don't worry, because God is in control. Even though the whole world would be washed clean, it would be purged, God still had his plan in motion. He would keep his promise. And so God delivers eight people through a flood. Surely, through one of them, the promise would come about, the one who was going to crush the serpent's head. But then we have what we read last week. Immediately after the flood, just in probably a year, maybe a couple of years' time, we're reading about now how Noah gets drunk. After planting a vineyard, Noah gets drunk and he strips naked. And if it wasn't bad enough, his son Ham now walks in on him. And he goes and brags about it to his brothers. And then Noah curses that line. What kind of a family is this? Out of all the people on the planet, these are the ones that God rescued from the flood? Are you kidding me? Where is the hope now? Oh, but don't worry. God is in control. The two other brothers, they don't follow Ham's lead. Instead, they copy what God did for Adam and Eve, and they cover their father's shame. There's hope, right? Yes, in our passage today, we read of the line of Shem, and through him, a man named Eber. E Eber is born, and Eber would come to be known as the father of the Hebrews. Through Eber comes a man by the name of Peleg. Peleg's name means division. And that was fitting, because around that time, the Bible tells us, he was born, uh, it, it was very clear in all the world that there was great division there. Things weren't good, but at least... 
hope was still alive. At least there's reason to believe. Several generations later in Peleg's line would be born Abram, as we mentioned. And if you know your Bibles, you know that God makes a promise to Abram. In Genesis 12, God says, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Yes, God has not abandoned his plan. In the midst of all the messiness, God is still working. He's still doing something. Through Abram would come a promised one. So Abram waits. And he waits. And he waits. No kids. Abram and his wife, they're now so old that it leads Abram to ask this question of God in Genesis chapter 15. Basically, he says, God, how are you going to keep your promise now? Now that we're so old. According to Romans 4.19, Abram was getting so old that he considered his own body as good as dead. (laughs) That's pretty old. Now, God could have answered him and said, oh, you were, you're so right. I am so sorry. I was busy ruling the universe, and I completely forgot about this promise I made to you. I'm so sorry. What else can I offer you? <laughs> but he doesn't do that. Instead, what God does is double down on the original promise, and he says, <laughs> you will have a son. You will have a son. In fact, your offspring are going to be as numerous as the stars in the night sky. Not completely trusting God, Abram's wife says, well, it's not going to happen through me. And don't look at me. How about my maidservant over here? And so neither Abram nor his wife trusting God move in that direction. And a son is born. Okay, maybe now things are moving here. Could this be exactly what God was waiting for? He was just waiting for Abraham to get creative, to think outside the box and and, and make things happen on his own. Is that what's going on here? But no, God tells Abram, it is not through Ishmael. Your way was wrong. My way is still going to happen. In chapter 17, God changes Abram's name from Abram to Abraham. And then he reminds him of that promise once again. How does Abram respond? He laughs. (laughs) Just laughs. Because at the ripe old age of 100, the thought of having a child is just ludicrous. Come on. This just doesn't happen. But you got to remember, God is in control. He does things his way, not the way that we think that he should do them. And at the age of 90 or 91, somewhere right in there, Sarah gives birth to Isaac. God came through on his promise in just this incredibly unexpected, miraculous way. Maybe he will finish his plan. But then God does something. It comes to Abraham and says, I've got a little test for you. 
You're, a, you're, you're over 100 now. I gave you the son I promised you. Now I want you to kill him. Can you imagine? You didn't trust me before. You had Ishmael. Now I'm asking you to redeem yourself and prove your trust to me right now. So I'm going to give you a chance. Sacrifice your son. Prove to me that you're willing to trust and obey me even when it doesn't make sense. Isn't that hard? When things don't make sense to us, trust can be such a difficult thing. When it looks like there is no road, there, is no, there are no more tracks around the bend. We are going over the cliff here if we trust God. And God says, trust me. Just trust me. Don't worry. I'm in control. And at the last second, God provi- provides a ram as a substitute for Isaac. And in so doing, he points to the reality that he is working out his plan and it will, he will absolutely finish what he started. What he said, he will do. He will accomplish his purpose, just like Isaiah 46 says. That's what we see time and time and time again throughout this book, this book of Genesis, and throughout the pages of the Bible, in the midst of human history unfolding, in the midst of the sinful mess we see going on all around us, God is still working out His plan. And the world that you and I live in is very much the same. We've been fruitful. We've multiplied. We've filled the earth with people. But we've also filled it with sin. And we see political leaders making those astounding decisions. We see people all around us making choices that are destructive, not only to themselves, but to others. We see our own bodies working against us, our own desires warring against our souls, like Peter told us in 1 Peter 2.11. Sometimes it feels like God isn't paying any attention to what's going on here. Sometimes it feels like he's forgotten about us. We're tempted to wonder whether or not he's got a handle on this thing or if it's just spinning out of control. He's trying to, to, to bring it back into order, but it's, just, it's, it's, it's slipping through his grasp. Has he given up? Can we still trust him? Should we still rely on him? Don't worry. He's in control. He's not forgotten about you. In the midst of all that you see happening in your world, in in the midst of division and disunity and the mudslinging and the trash talk and the slurs and the slandering, the violence, the inhumanity, the intolerance, name of tolerance, the suppression of rights, the flagrant immorality, the disintegration of family, the degradation of sexuality, the devaluing of humanity, the deconstruction of identity. In the midst of all of that, he is unfolding his plan. You know, when, when I was studying Genesis 10 and I was reading through it and reading all these names, there are a ton of names in there. Wondering about each of them and wondering, you know, what was their, what was this person's life like? I, I need more information. I want to know. Did that person's life matter? What are the details that have been left unwritten? And then I start wondering about my life and thinking, is my life going to be like that? 
kind of lost in the shuffle? Does anything that's going on with me, does this really matter? It's so easy to feel small and insignificant, like your life doesn't matter all that much. And that's when you got to remember God is in control, unfolding his plan in the plan that he is sovereignly working out throughout history is a plan that includes you and includes me. You know, Peter said in 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord's not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He's still working out his plan. He's coming again. And on that day, he will right all wrongs. It seems like he's taking a long time, but that's because he's waiting for more people to trust him, to trust in Jesus, the one that he promised from the very beginning. He's the only one that can fix the problem of humanity. So you see all the legislation that's being passed. You see the classes that are out there. You see all the different things. You see the t-shirts. You see all the different things that people are trying to do to bring unity back to our nation and hopefully to our world. None of it's going to work. None of it can work because the real issue has not been addressed The only solution for humanity is the removal of the guilt of our sin. And when that's removed, we are reunited with God. And when we are reunited with God, we are reunited with each other. And that's one of the things we see happening in the context of the church. Could he be waiting for you? He says he's patient. He's waiting. Could he be waiting for you? If you're here this morning and you haven't placed your trust in Jesus, if you haven't recognized your own sin, and that there's a, there's a disruption between your relationship with God that's disrupting your relationship with others, and you haven't confessed that sin and said, Jesus, I need you. I deserve to be punished for this sin, but you took that punishment on the cross, and just by trusting in you, I am washed clean. I am forgiven. Make me a new person. If you haven't done that, then perhaps God is waiting for you. Would you trust Him this morning? He loves you. He cares for you. He planned from the very beginning to make a way for you to be rescued from that poison of sin that's in your heart just like it was in mine. He's been unfolding His plan throughout history and He's calling you to embrace the gift of Jesus Christ right now. Would you pray with me?